Hey guys, this is AC, and you're listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. Howdy how, y'all. Welcome to another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. I'm Oswe, and joining me today are Eric... Yes, sir. And AC. What's up, guys? So, gentlemen, Eric, looks like you win. Congrats to your team. It was a disappointing loss for me. I like how Oswe introduces this without any context whatsoever. So for those of you sitting at home, Eric is a lifelong 49ers fan. That's his football bandwagon. But to his credit, he actually has been a Niners fan consistently through the years. I'm liking small basketball. Kid, guys. So it's a small I'm liking kid. basketball. I'm not yeah, polygamous in my football relationships. <laughs> Only basketball. And Asui is a lifelong Packers fan. And for those of you guys, especially abroad, these are two American football teams who were facing each other a couple days ago. And Eric's team won in one of the most bizarre endings I can recall in a game. But we will get to that at the end of this pod. So if you're interested, stay tuned, guys. So, guys, I thought today it would be fun to talk about the return of the big man in the NBA. This is something that on this show we've talked about a little bit here and there, especially when we would bring up guys like Joel Embiid and Nikola Jokic. So we thought, you know what? Why don't we actually break it down? Let's talk about the big man. And let's talk about how, in particular, Joel Embiid and Nikola Jokic have ushered in a new era, one where having a big man as your number one option is now viable again. But before we get into that, historically, we've had some legendary big men who've dominated the league. You're thinking about Bill Russell, Will Chamberlain, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Shaq, Hakeem Olajuwon. But over the last 15 years or so, the dominance of the big man has really waned. So guys, why is that? What happened to the league that all of a sudden a guy like Dwight Howard goes from being a number one option to the butt of every joke of Eric's? (laughs) I mean, I have a very simple answer for that to me. As the game moved further and further from the basket, and guys became capable of hitting threes at volume, the center as a hub of your offense waned. And that's why, of course, every decade up until the aughts, usually the dominant players of the decade were bigs. And the late 40s through mid-50s, it was Mikan. Then you had Russell... And Wilt Chamberlain up to the late 60s, late 60s through 70s into early 80s, of course, was ruled by Karina Abdul-Jabbar. Then you had centers like you had Patrick Ewing, you had Olajuwon, 90s, you had Robinson, and you had Shaq. But all of these guys were guys who were giving you 25 points or more. In Wilt Chamberlain's case, 50 points <laughs> in certain seasons. And and Bill Russell's case, not giving you the, the big offensive stats, but He was a hub on offense as a passer, and defensively, he was a savant. But at some point, offense moved 
away from the basket, you had perimeter players being very dominant, who could score outside, inside. And then what you had, as that happened, you had your centers becoming more specialist. So you had dominant centers who were defensively, like, great, or you had dominant centers who could still do a lot on offense. So if you look at the all-defensive teams for the last 15 years up until the ascendancy of Joel Embiid and Nikolai Jokic, you have a Dwight Howard who he could have seasons where he was pretty good offensively, but he was never giving you anywhere near the over 25 points per game that the dope-ass centers who came before him were giving you. And then you will have guys, I even saw Al Jefferson somehow make it onto a, a all-NBA team. A talented low-post player, but he wasn't doing anything defensively, and he was limited offensively. So you had these guys who were pretty much one-dimensional as centers, and I think that's the law that we saw in, in the last 15 years. Everything Eric said is 100% true. Even when we were young and Michael Jordan was dominating the NBA, he was an exception to the general rule that you needed this incredible big man to even be competitive. And that's not just centers, but even dominant low post power forwards. Like certainly in the early 2000s, we had an era where you had Duncan, Garnett, Weber, Nowitzki, sort of all playing at the same time. But that post up big man died. And the biggest reason for that, apart from what Eric said in terms of skills changing, is that the NBA implemented a massive rule change. Prior to the early 2000s, you could not play any form of a zone defense, right? And what that meant was, if a guy caught the ball in the post, only on the catch could you leave your man and send a double team. So, let's say Shaq is down there backing somebody up. If you wanted a shade help toward him, away from a bad shooter or something like that, you were basically screwed by what they called the illegal defense rule. So if you had left your bad three-point shooter and you kind of cheated towards Shaq, it was illegal defense. First, there was a warning, and then it became an actual technical foul. So what that allowed to happen was Shaq to just dominate one-on-one. -on -one, and then by the time the double came, he could either make a quick move and, and sort of turn away from the double, or he would make the right pass. Once that changed, post-play became exceedingly difficult because you could front a guy forward and backward. I remember when, when someone like Yao was in the league, right? He had an amazing offensive skill set. I, I'd watch a lot of those Houston games and think to myself, man, they just can't get this guy the ball because they would be fronting him both ways, someone in front of him, someone behind him, and shading help toward him. So that's kind of one of the biggest reasons why posting up became more and more inefficient and as Eric said, at the same time, teams started to realize, you know, the math of the game and, and the power of the three-point shot. And so even if you could get the ball to someone down low and they were making a, a tough contested fadeaway or something like that, or in a hook shot, it's just less efficient than taking a three-pointer. And it's so much easier to find guys who can make threes than find guys who can catch and then finish around the rim, you know, with the dominant low post move. So that rule change absolutely had an impact as well on why the, the big man declined in the NBA. Okay, so then what's changed in the league now that we have guys like Embiid and Jokic kind of shifting it back toward the big man? So I think the biggest thing that happened that changed all that is that people got so good at shooting and offense became so 
specialized, right? That now we've come to a point in the league where, so like, think about when when the rules first changed for someone like Shaq, right? So now you could kind of shade toward him. And if he caught the ball, he'd make an immediate pass out. The three-point shooting hadn't caught up to that strategy yet. Now, basically everybody on the court can make a three. And if they can't, then they are that one big man on the on the court who is getting the ball down low. So now, even those zone principles, they might stop a guy from scoring 50 on a given night, you know, because you can you can shade toward him and, and make it difficult for him to catch the ball, but you'll probably still lose the game doing that because you're gonna lead to wide open three-pointers elsewhere. So I think offense has now come to a place that they've countered that. The other thing that's happened is there's just been an emergence of big men who have expanded their skill set. Because if you look at the, the big men right now in the NBA, they're not just low post guys, right? Nikola Jokic, Joel Embiid, they're capable of facing you up, taking you off the dribble, hitting perimeter shots. So you can use them not just as post-up men, but they can become guys who can pop out to the three-point line. You know, Eric mentioned a great point before that sort of in the last 15 years, you had guys who were either offensive players at the big man positions or they were defensive players. Now they can do a little bit of both. It's important that you mentioned that they've expanded their skill sets because while Jokic and Embiid do have a lot of the same DNA of the traditional bigs, you know, the back to the basket type of guys, when you look at their shooting by distance, I mean, Joel Embiid in particular, it's almost split evenly. His The percentage of shots he attempts from zero to three feet, from three to 10 feet, and from 10 to 16 feet. And it only dips slightly from 16 feet to three, right? So though he's known as being a real bruising big man down low, if you actually look at the splits of where he's attempting his shots, it's all over the place. You know what's crazy, guys? When we talk about how like guys have evolved from being as big men specialists, we have mentioned like guys like Jokic and Embiid diversifying their skill set where they're so dominant now. And I always forget, even though they're so dominant, we have a guy who's legitimately a big man unicorn like Cat in Minnesota. But these other two guys, because they have diversified their skill sets to such an extreme where you have a guy like Embiid, who's a monster defensive player, but also from 16 feet in, he destroys anyone. And then you have Jokic, who has combined an outside game with a inside, like, post, like, beautiful game. And also the passing of Bill Walton with good defense. And Eric, we're not even mentioning Cat. <laughs> yeah, but Eric, the difference between Cat and those guys is that Cat is soft as fuck. And those guys are bruising big men. So please do not equate the two. <laughs> I I just I wanted to be nice to the guy for one pod like Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, you got you got to keep it consistent. You know what I'm saying? I think Eric's right though that there is, it's not just Jokic and Embiid. Those are the headline guys, but we've seen an emergence of a lot of guys who can play in the post now, right? And and are more traditional sort of big, but also guys who can shoot out to the three point line. The unicorn baits like the the Porzingis's and the Cats and people like that. What's interesting to me is that the other reason that a big man is valuable to have on your team now is that switching has become such a prevalent strategy, especially in playoff basketball, that if you have a big man that can 
you know, take someone down to the post. Like if you switch a little guard onto him and he can put someone on his back and just say, all right, I'm going to big boy you and I'm going to score. It negates switching, right? So for the last 15 years or so, there was almost a move away from a guy like a Jaleel Okafor, a guy like, a, you know, you mentioned Al Jefferson, right? Someone who's just a traditional post big man. But now there's a return of a value of that kind of player to some degree because so many teams are switching that you need something to punish that. And you can't just punish it with your guard killing the big. Sometimes you need to throw it down low and get someone to have an easy basket. So there's now value in that guy. Maybe not to the extent there was before, but there's yet another way that a big man can be used now. Back then, switching onto a big would be considered unheard of, right? No one would put a guard, someone little trying to check like Patrick Ewing or somebody like that. Okay, that, that makes sense. Eric, you mentioned a couple unicorn bigs. I would like to stick to the real headliners because we can't say it's the return of the big man and have Kat as an example of that. Jokic and Embiid is the real focus of this. So guys, tell me what you've seen from Jokic this season. I'm going to tee Eric up here because all season long, from the really from... The first month of the season, Eric has been telling all of us in our text threads, why is the national media not noticing what this guy's doing on a night in, night out basis? So, Eric, what is he actually doing? Tell our audience at least. <laughs> He's literally playing with no one, giving you a 26, like 13 rebounds, 7, 8 assists. And it's not just those ridiculous, absurd stats. And we were talking the other day about the fact that one of the nights he had like a 49, some ridiculous number of assists and some ridiculous number of rebounds. And it just happened that Joel Embiid also scored 50 points that night. So it kind of just was ignored. But on a night to night basis, he's giving you not only that 25 points per game as a scorer, he's also... Every time I see him, he's the best passer on the floor. So whether that's a point guard, whether that's LeBron James, and I'm saying this as a person who's bullish about LeBron James as a passer, this is a man who's giving you an evolved Bill Walton any given game on that end of the floor. And he's dragging a team to like be able to not be in the playing games with a roster that's just devoid of any real talent to help him out. He's sublime. And I personally put him in my two best players in the world. I think, of course, he had an MVP season last year. And now he's even up the ante, having a historically efficient season. So to me, like, Nikolai Jokic has it all. What I love about Jokic's game is how the entire offense could go through him. It's one thing to say that he is their best player because he can score the most or he gets the most rebounds. But it's another thing altogether to say that he's also one of the best creators for that team. I mean, one of the things I love the most about LeBron James's game is how much he's able to create for others and enable others. And I think it goes a long way in just the overall team dynamics when your star is also one of your lead distributors of the ball. It, it really galvanizes the troops in a way. And also, just as an aside, Jokic's nickname is the Joker. And man, I freaking love him as an NBA personality. 
He's just so entertaining. Like all the stuff he does on the sidelines before, during, and after the games. He's just the man. I wanted to touch on what Eric mentioned about his passing. So of all things in basketball, there's one thing that I'm a snob about. It's passing, right? Ando so, Simmons. <laughs> even in real life, like I, I'm, I overpass. Yeah, guys, <laughs> I play so, point guard and I overpass all the time. Just, just so as I an, love passing. Just as an aside, guys, whenever my brother AC overpasses in anything, whether it's a soccer video game or when we're <laughs> playing basketball in real life, I yell, Rondo Simmons, Rondo Simmons. <laughs> <laughs> you got to call him Tragic Johnson. <laughs> Tragic Johnson. <laughs> so I have always valued passing above everything else. And, you know, that goes from all my favorite basketball players basically are guys who are great passers. So I look at it like there's people who are functional passers. Then there's guys who are good passers. Like they can make their teammates better. Right. So let me example each of these categories. A functional passer to me is someone like Kawhi. He can make passes and he's maybe veered toward the can make good passes guys. Right. Those are guys who can make passes, get guys open, things like that. I put like Durant in there. Maybe someone like Russell Westbrook in there. Maybe Westbrook's a notch above, but then he makes bad turnovers. I don't know. Then you have extraordinarily efficient passers, guys like Chris Paul, guys like John Stockton. These guys make amazing passes. But they also somehow don't turn the ball over. But then there's a notch above even them to me, which is guys who can make the absurd passes that can, like just throw over defenses and those kind of cross-court passes, things like that. I put guys like there, like LeBron has that ability. Luka Doncic has that ability, right? These guys often have size to go with whatever they can do. Then you have the guys who can make all those passes, but they also can do these ridiculous trick sort of passes that nobody should even attempt but they do it all the time passes with weird english pass with all kinds of different things so the guys in that category to me are guys like jason kidd guys like magic johnson and i have to say guys like nikola Jokic. i think he literally makes a passing game that i'm like what the hell was that touch passes passes weird spin the other day eric and i were talking about a passing game we're like is that a curveball pass? Like, what What even is that? <laughs> like, what, I didn't even know they could do that with the basketball, right? So he has so many passes like that. But as else we said, he's not just a passer either, right? He's not someone like a Jason Kidd who could really only beat you offensively with his passing and then later in life develop a three-point shot. Nikola Jokic can defeat whatever coverage you put on him. If you want to try to switch on him, he'll post you. And he can post up even strong guys and, and bigger guys like Someone like Anthony Davis no, never gets posted up against. Jokic gave him the business in the, in the 2020 playoffs over and over again. And, you know, he can shoot credibly too. And he has this weird set shot that he does. And he has this thing called the Sambo Shuffle, which is his like sort of unique step back that he does where he doesn't even leave the ground. And, so, and, it, and it works. So he's really a, a one-of-a-kind player. I've never seen anyone like him before or since. And I'm, I'm glad he's in the NBA. When I was prepping for this episode, I looked at... MVP seasons of big men in league history. Right now, Jokic's usage rate is 31.6, which is higher than Shaq's 1999-2000 MVP season, David Robinson's 1994-95 season, and Olajuwon's 93-94 season. And the numbers he's putting up is comparable, if not better than all of those. But he also has aspects of his games that those guys didn't. Now, Olajuwon could shoot the three. In that year, he shot 42 from beyond the arc. 
And thus far, Jokic short, is shooting short and three point line though. Sure. Yeah, that was but, a short year. That in the next year, I think. Yeah. But Jokic thus far is shooting thirty seven percent from beyond the arc, and his assist numbers are through the roof. It's just amazing that this guy he kind of blends a little bit of what was great about those guys' years, but he's doing it in a very unique way that only Jokic can do. The other night, Embiid dropped 50, but Jokic had a 49-point triple-double. It's ridiculous. The kind of stat lines that Jokic puts, if if anything, it's almost like we're desensitized to it. We're like, oh, yeah, another ridiculous triple-double by Jokic. In the few years he's been in the league, he just keeps climbing up that all-time triple-doubles list. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because he's in Denver and not in a, a bigger market team. I don't know what it is. Why is it that the media in general doesn't cover the ridiculous stat lines that he has nearly enough? Well, to be fair, this happens to guys who are statistical anomalies. So we've seen this recently happen to Giannis. We've seen this happen to LeBron. So we will see LeBron leading both teams in a playoff series in points, rebounds, assists, steals. And you have someone like Skip Bayless. And I know Skip Bayless is the extreme example of a hater, of course. But, ah, he's just stat padding. But these are stat padding in high leverage situations. That's similar to what I expect is going on with Jokic, where it's just he does it so much that it becomes commonplace. It doesn't stand out like Ja Morant having a, a 48 and 7 night because Ja, who averages 24 per game, he doesn't do that shit every night. But Jokic does. You know, Eric, this reminds me of another part of his game that I think is not getting enough play. So last season, when we did our playoff preview pod, we ranked all the players. And one of the factors in ranking Jokic that we discussed was his defense. And you brought up in that pod, that he's statistically actually a pretty good defender, right? And, you know, my counter to that was, that's true, but he's limited from a scheme perspective to some degree because he can do some things well, but he's not like a shot blocker or anything like that. But he's actually gotten better on the defensive end, and every number shows it. Their defense is significantly better with Jokic than without Jokic, right? And, you know, this is now a guy who we could actually say is a two-way player. He's not an elite defender by any means, but he's a solid defender at the very least. I mean, the numbers don't lie on that. To your point, AC, when it comes to perimeter defense, he's in the 82nd percentile. And in steals per 75 possessions, he's in the 82nd percentile as well. His interior defense and percent of rim shot contested, he's in the 91st percentile. Rim contested per 75, he's in the 84th percentile. Help rim protection, 83rd percentile. Screener rim defense, he's in the 95th percentile. Like Those numbers show that he's not a bad defender. The biggest knock on him with his defense previously was because he was just not in good enough shape for it. But he's gotten in shape now. He's slimmed down significantly. And it, it goes back to that thing. It's not like he's a, a minus defender. So, Oswi, you brought up some good numbers there. And... One thing it shows with his steal rate and, and his on-ball defense is he's very good with his hands, right? One thing oh, yeah. about Jokic, he has very fast hands, so he's amazing at trapping. That's his best scheme because he can use his quick hands and his size to make that and pass difficult. And his reflexes. Difficult. And his, his really quick reflexes, 100%. I mean, he gets tons of steals like that. I'm interested that you mentioned 
that he contests in the 91st percentile, which at least shows effort. But I wonder how effective those contests actually are. Do you have a number from B-Ball Index on that, Oswe? Right. So per B-Ball Index, his rim D field goal percentage versus expected is only 26%. So he's in the 26th percentile at actually dropping people's Basically, he contests, he gives effort, but he's not very good at actually making a difference at someone's shot at the rim. And that and that's the rub with Jokic. He has that one big flaw, is that if you need to play some kind of a drop scheme, he's not your guy because he just doesn't get up. You know, like he's still that's, tall. That's, and a, yeah. that's a hell of a flaw, though. <laughs> that's a hell of a flaw. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a hell of a flaw, for sure. I mean, because ultimately, you want your big man to do some of that on the defensive end. Um, because you can only... There's, you can't play up to the touch or trap or play an aggressive pick and roll scheme against every team there's going to be teams that can pass out of that you know or have a guy who's really good in the short roll and now you have to play some other kind of scheme and you know i don't know maybe then you try to switch or something something where you can allow him to maybe play more on the perimeter than protecting the rim but that is absolutely a defensive flaw and and i see this is a great point for you all to bring up to even play devil's advocate for some fans who might at times devalue some of his contributions I think what they might be seeing is guys actually converting at the rim against him. Whereas if you look at Anthony Davis, the numbers will back up and we can see it that guys are having a difficult time finishing at the rim when he contests at the rim. And that's also largely has been something that a lot of great bigs have held in common. So if you look at David Robinson some of these traditional guys we're talking about, Hakeem Olajuwon, they contested at the rim and they stopped you when they contested. So people see that even if they don't literally have the stats to immediately like legitimize. And I guess, yeah, to your point, AC, when you think about how the rule changes this season have changed how players are playing, guys are driving more. You have like the John Morantz of the world just killing it this season, I can see how Jokic's inability to affect their field goal percentage can really be something that hurts that team. So that, Aswi, I got to ask you about your guy, right? Because if Jokic has been maybe the headliner in some ways, quietly, Joel Embiid is putting together an unbelievable season, especially in the last two months. To the point that, I know Zach Lowe said recently that he thinks that Joel Embiid is playing better than anyone in the NBA over the last couple of months. And I, I don't I can't disagree with that. You see him night in and night out, and that's a guy who is absolutely elite, even in the interior. But just generally speaking, what have you seen from Joel Embiid as a Sixers fan watching him basically carry, much like Jokic, a pretty flawed team, especially without Ben Simmons and with Tobias Harris having really an atrocious season (laughs) compared to his talent level, at least. Yeah. Well, as our fans and you guys know, I've had a complicated history with Joel Embiid to the point when I met him in 2016, I think I was actually upset that I was meeting him for his autograph as opposed to Ben Simmons, which is hilarious. That's actually really funny. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's true. It's true. And uh, Joel Embiid, I'm sorry for everything before. But the thing is what we're seeing this year from Joel Embiid is everything we ever thought he could be and more. This is probably the best he's ever played. At the date of recording, the Sixers just beat the San Antonio Spurs. Embiid had another 30-10 and 10 game. And he basically carried the team the entire game because 
Say what you want about the Spurs, but they're scrappy regardless of lack of talent. Prior to tonight's game, in the last 15 games for Embiid, he was averaging 33 points and 10 rebounds. In that span, he had the second fastest 50-point game in league history, but he did it only with one three-pointer, whereas the other guys in the top five shot multiple three-pointers in their games. In that stretch, he also had two 40-point games. And when you watch him play, he has moves that look like Jordan and Shaq and Hakeem from time. It's it's ridiculous. It just shows the diversity of his skill set. And then, as I mentioned before, it's pretty even split around the floor. Like, yes, he is often the biggest guy on the floor, but he's dangerous from 0 to 3, 3 to 10, 10 to 16, 16 to the three-point line. From the field, he's shooting 49.8%. From beyond the arc, 39%. And from the free throw line, 81%, which is ridiculous. It's more than Giannis. It's more than Jokic. It's more than all of the big man legends MVP seasons that I've seen. The ones that I did research on, rather. But, like, I can't help but feel like we're wasting a season of him because Ben is refusing to play and we've yet to get a trade for him. Fret not, child. You will get CJ McCollum soon enough. God (laughs) You know, you know if, if this this if he, if this happens and he gets traded for CJ McCollum, we're gonna have to have an emergency pod because Eric has called us from day one and Oswe has rejected this from day one. I mean, this is completely off topic, but we don't need CJ McCollum. There, there is nothing that CJ McCollum would bring that our team needs. We don't need another small guard. Yeah, I agree. I think the emergence of Maxi has made the need for someone like CJ lessen. But to get back to Embiid for a second, I do want to talk about the emergence of Tyrese Maxi, you know, the, the continued positive play of, of Seth Curry, and the absence of Ben Simmons. Is it fair to say, and uh, this is from the outside looking in, right? I mean, I, I, I try to watch Sixers games because they're local here, so you know it's easy to watch them on basically wherever the hell you are. Every bar has them. Every place has them. So I've seen a decent amount of their games, but I don't get to see them as often as you do. Is Embiid better in part, at least, because he just for the first time actually has people around him who can actually shoot? Like he doesn't have at least one player at all times who can only score around the rim and won't even attempt a shot anywhere outside of that. And now he has legitimate guards who can shoot that so that even if Tobias is in a bit of a slump, at least the spacing makes sense, and a guy like him can operate in the positions and with the spacing that are optimal for him for the first time. Well, it's it's two things. That point you make is 100% true. We're seeing Embiid enjoying all this extra space. He can operate his whole mid-range game. He could do a little bit of face-up. He could do his nice little Dirk shot. He could do some fadeaways. I've seen multiple times where he just goes coast-to-coast. Coast. He... he he blocks a shot, then he takes it all the way, does a nice Euro and and dunks it or has a nice layup. He's been unlocked. He doesn't have a limitation of space anymore. So yeah, he definitely enjoys that. And the other thing is health. Now, earlier this season, he was out because various different reasons. And I think now he's he's past that, knock on wood, pray to whatever basketball gods there is. Thus far, he's been relatively healthy. And also, he's in in the best shape I've ever seen him. And so that's also enabled him to be able to do all of that. He's he's able to attack the rim if he wants. 
He can still be a freaking defensive anchor. It's all of that put together. It's it's the extra space and it's the help. So, Oswee, what you're telling me, essentially, like in short form, you're telling me that Joel Embiid is actually better than Nikolai Jokic, right? You had to go there, didn't you? <laughs> I mean, we were clearly at a point where we were at some impasse. It was going to happen sooner or later. <laughs> <laughs> Round one, Eric versus Oswe. You know, honestly, it's very difficult to make a comparison to both of them, between the two of them, because they both do different things very well. They both are unquestionably have the skill to be the best player on a championship team. They are guys who you can double them and that's still not enough. I think where Jokic has a leg up more than anything, playmaking aside, and I guess that's a lot to say aside, but biggest ability that Jokic has over Embiid is availability. Jokic has found a way, despite not being a paragon of of fitness, let's just say, he thus far, and knock on wood because I want Jokic to never get injured, but for the most part, he hasn't had many injuries. He's more or less been available in every series he's played, and he's been awesome. On the flip side... We kind of say that not a paragon of fitness is the nicest way to to call someone chunky that I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) Not a paragon of fitness. Kudos kudos to Oswee for his euphemism game. Yeah, look, man, I'm a a chubby guy myself, so I'm not uh, trying to be out here commenting on nothing like that. We don't body shame in these parts. Exactly, exactly. That's not the game I'm trying to play. On the flip side, though, when Embiid is healthy, you just see that he he has so much diversity to his game. I remember, I think it was our guest host, Mus, who who shared this tweet. And basically what it was was a video splicing a couple moves that Embiid does with Jordan or Kobe or Hakeem or Shaq or all these guys doing it. And the difference is... Embiid is bigger and heavier than just about all of them. I mean, maybe not heavier than Shaq, but, you know, it's it's just incredible to see what he's capable of doing. And not to mention, one thing that he has that I haven't seen from Jokic is he has the ability to really get into the head of other players that he's playing against. I guess Jokic has the ability to get into the back of Morris, who, is he still injured? <laughs> but the thing is, Embiid has an ability like the other night I watched we were playing against the Clippers and he got Zubak in foul trouble really early and as a result you know he basically negated the one guy who might be able to guard him like he's he's incredible at drawing fouls and then getting into people's heads that result in them getting ejected ultimately I've seen it happen so many times in person and on TV so I can't help but hear as you're framing this, Oswe, to me, and I like to just make comparisons because it, it helps me better analyze players. This sounds, as we're talking in comparison between Jokic and Embiid, this almost sounds like a late aughts conversation about the merits between LeBron and Kobe. And interesting. Interesting. So, so for me, when I would hear like people compare LeBron and Kobe, it would be with Kobe. You have this incredible scorer, 
all this like great like scoring skill set and he was this dogged defender who like psychologically played with other players Jokic on the other hand like LeBron is this like virtuoso passer who on the offensive end can do everything really well but doesn't have necessarily like the psychological like killer like I'm fucking with you to like get an advantage over you that when you were kind of making the comparison, it, it just sounded like to me. Just interesting about the styles. I, I do appreciate that's a really cool way of looking at that. But I will say though, just as, as an aside, not as a argument in either direction, I want to take a step back and just say it's kind of cool that we're even making this debate right now because these guys are so ultra talented and they're bigs. No, that's a great point, Oswe. Like, how cool is it that we're in an era now after the dominance of wings and, and guards for so long that we're having a debate about the best big man in the league right now? And 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 we're able to make a Kobe-LeBron comparison in a, in a sense, right? Like, it, it shows that the entire concept of big man has expanded. It's not just your back-to-the-back guy. It's not just your defensive anchor. It, it's more than that. But... To that point, there are also stats that make comparison, right? When it comes to perimeter shooting, Jokic definitely has the upper hand. When it comes to finishing around the rim, when it comes to three-point shot creation, Embiid has the upper hand, right? I think for a couple reasons, Embiid is a better ISO player. Because he has the athleticism, he has the strength, he can play, I mean, as above the basket as a seven-foot man can. And if, if you're one-on-one on Embiid, he'll either find a way to draw the foul, find a way to get around you, find a way to bully through you, or just shoot over top of you in a way that Jokic can't. Embiid is in the 99th percentile in total ISO impact per 75. Whereas Jokic, now obviously he's still really good, Jokic is in the 96th percentile. And based on the fact that both guys are number one options with limited options around them, I think it's very telling that Embiid has the upper hand when it comes to ISO situations. Okay. I mean, I think great points were made. I think great points were made. I mean, only one of the two guys is an MVP. Only one of these two guys have actually made it, if I'm not mistaken, to a conference finals. (laughs) Only one of these two guys leads the league in player efficiency rating, wins above replacement, uh, VORP, let's see, box plus minus, real plus minus. I mean, most efficiency stats in general. Right. Shoots a higher, shoots a higher average from the floor. I mean, has way more ridiculous box scores than the other guy. But, you know, like, I I think you made great arguments for Joel Embiid. (laughs) 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 that's like the most shaded compliment i've ever heard (laughs) no look look listen we're picking at hairs here right because the numbers don't lie i think that where it stands right now Jokic is the better player right i do say that though with a caveat which is Embiid's availability right i think that the points you made about mvp well, Embiid was looking good for MVP, and then he got injured, right? Embiid good could point, have been Embiid could have been in some conference finals, notably in 2019 when Kawhi had the double or quadruple bouncer that went in. 
because in that series, he wasn't 100%. So if these guys are at 100% and they're in a series, let's say by you know the grace of the basketball gods, we have Embiid versus Jokic in the finals this year or some year. And it's under the assumption that both guys are 100% healthy, no nagging issues, nothing like that. I think it would be a pretty even matchup. But I give Embiid the upper hand in that it's much harder to defensively scheme against him. Jokic, 27.7% of his attempted field goals are between 0 and 3. He attempts 34.3% of his shots between 3 and 10 feet from the hoop. That's Embiid's zone. Most of Jokic's points come in that area where Embiid is an elite defensive anchor. So I think from a pure matchup standpoint, Embiid has the upper hand because he's faster, he's stronger, he's more athletic than Jokic is. And while Jokic has improved as a defender, I don't see him having any chance of stopping Embiid. Like, look, Jokic is such a talented scorer that there's only so much that a defense can do. Defense in its nature is reactive, right? So a good scorer will still get his. But the difference is one guy can slow down the other whereas the other guy just can't. So I'm first going to shame you and not backing up as a, a fellow chunkster, Oswee, a, a, a fellow guy with a little more to love. I feel like you're disrespecting <laughs> our, our compatriot here oh my God. And, and Nikolai Jokic by like this like slanderous like outpour of, oh, person A can score from here and that person B can't, you know, like whatever. We might have to revoke your, your you know, your membership. But surprisingly, the two gentlemen have played against each other five times in their careers. Okay. Not a lot. Fairly small sample size. But you'll be surprised, Oswee. You know who averages more points against the other? Go ahead. Make my day. Our fellow fat man extraordinaire, Nikolai Jokic. It's, it's, it's really close, to be fair. But he does score <laughs> better against him and at a higher clip than Joel Embiid does. But I do think you have a point because Joel Embiid's game has expanded in the last two seasons. And I think he's now hitting shots. Particularly, you pointed out he's shooting 39, almost 40% from three on three shots. He doesn't shoot it a lot, but his game is progressively moving outside and getting more efficient while doing so. So I would love to see a potential hypothetical matchup between these two guys because both of them have ascended in the last two seasons where I have no clue if they were to face up head to head, who would get the better of of the two. Yeah, no doubt. And, And like I said, when you have great players, great scorers, there's only so much a great defender can do on that, right? I wholeheartedly believe that Jokic will still get his, regardless of who's guarding him, even if it's Embiid. But Embiid can trade punches with them, without question. And in those five games, how is Embiid's health in all those, right? Like, that that does shift averages a bit. So, like I said, in the in the miraculous, magical matchup where it's these guys in a series where health is not a concern, I think those close numbers that you said 
are probably even closer and potentially not to blaspheme Jokic in any way. All due respect to Jokic. I'm saying potentially could even exceed some of Jokic's numbers. But see, that's the only thing I would say where I would have an advantage for Jokic. Let's say they are just a wash scoring. And this is an argument I used to make with AC when we would talk about Kobe and LeBron. Jokic is such a great passer that he can legitimately dominate a game yeah. by dropping a whole hum 20 where he's just, he's making hockey assists. He's making primary assists. He's seeing plays develop before everyone on the court. He's, he's that type of offensive savant yeah. that for me, that would be the, the one thing that gives him a leg up in a competition that I think is dramatically close. And, and to your point, Eric, one thing that, you know, I've watched so many Sixers games with AC and the one thing he'd always comment about is how Embiid's passing out of a double team leaves a lot to be desired. Now, he's definitely improved on that end over the years. I mean, without question, he's improved. But it's not It's not even comparable to, to Jokic. So, yeah, like if, if both guys can handle a double really well, then they'll probably score. But if there's enough defensive pressure on that double, Jokic can kick it to his guys much better than Embiid can. And it goes one step further because then it becomes a, a point about what do you value more, potential offense generated on your own or potential offense generated overall. And the one thing Embiid can't do is he can't generate offense for his team overall the way that Jokic can. So in that way, yeah, definitely he has the upper edge there for sure. I'll concede that much. It's one of those things where the statistical case, as Eric laid out, on all like sort of the catch-all advanced stats, Jokic has a huge edge. But Joel Embiid is just so good as an interior defender. I mean, you could make an argument that he's the best interior defender in the NBA. And whenever you have that combined with his offensive Fuck overall... <laughs> <laughs> combined with his overall offensive skill set, it becomes one of those things where it's hard to say that Anyone is better than him. But I just think Jokic is so spectacular at the offensive end that I would still give him the slight edge. And my biggest reason for doing so, guys, is something that neither of you have really touched on yet. Jokic is an unbelievable playoff player. If you look at his playoff numbers, even when the Nuggets were really young and not that experienced, he is a freaking stud in the playoffs. Now, Joel Embiid had a great playoffs last year. I would argue that was the first truly good playoff run he's had. And again, as also he rightfully pointed out, it's also the first one that he, he was, was healthy, healthy for. Yes. But but regardless, I would I would say that against better competition, Jokic has outplayed Embiid in the playoffs. And I always look at that as the ultimate deciding factor because let's be honest, there's a lot of guys in this league who can put up big numbers crazy advanced stats in regular season, but playoff basketball is different, right? Teams are scheming against you. Coaches are looking at your tendencies. They're finding ways to exploit every little weakness in your game. And Jokic just has a counter to everything. I love the way that Eric framed it. Like you could take away this part of his game, but he unlocks that part of his game, right? He really is a nightmare in every sense of the word. Both these guys are, but I'm just saying, I, I think I would give him a slight edge at this point 
as an overall basketball player because of his proven track record in the playoffs. Now, if Joel Embiid puts together a couple more seasons like he did this last year, you know, we're going to be looking at this in a few years saying maybe we underrated what Joel Embiid was doing at that time. And, and that's the thing with whenever you rely upon playoff basketball is that a guy can fail so many times and they can completely change their career trajectory around, right? And they can go a, a totally different way. And I think the fact that Embiid has gotten into shape and has found a mid-range game he didn't have previously and is slowly improving as a passer, although I, I find him on my passing connoisseur rankings, he falls in the uh, functional passer <laughs> point where he could take... I don't think he's a good passer. We need to make this a legitimate <laughs> scale for brown men won't jump. The uh, yeah, AC yeah. scale of <laughs> passing. I would love to do this. Yeah, so I look at him as a functional passer. So, you know, he can make a pass, but I think he's a little bit better than AD, who I think is actually a bad passer out of double teams, but not that much better. So, Whereas, as I said, I give Jokic the absolute highest criteria. It was funny to me when you guys were having this little debate. And also he was like, take away the passing, and then it's all <laughs> close. It's like, take away the thing that this guy is better at than anybody right. in the world right now, arguably. And yeah, then it's close. But if you don't take that away, maybe it's not so close. No, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so after we had that little round with Oswee versus Eric, and, and honestly a pretty enjoyable discussion about Two really great basketball players. Each of them have rooting interest for both of them. But I think we could all say we all respect both of those guys. I want to move to a different sport in which there's very little respect between you guys. Uh, 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 and I want to give you a little bit of framework. So we're going to have a round two between Aswi and Eric. This is in a totally different field, a totally different sport. And we want to have a little venting and a little bit of natural reaction space. So I want to give you guys some context to this, all right? The 49ers that Erica supported from San Francisco have knocked out Oswee's Green Bay Packers before this game three times in the last decade. They've been knocked out. And I would argue, at least you could make the argument, that maybe the Packers had the better actual team all of those times, at the least two of those t- three times. And I think this year, pretty much universally, people would have said, the Packers were the better team, right? <laughs> and just to give you guys some context, okay? It was a 10-3 to game. It was pretty close, but it looked like the Niners couldn't even advance the ball. And then this crazy punt block happened, and also we had the first of his many rants. My guy was screaming. He was <laughs> pounding the ground. We're watching this game on our top floor of my townhouse. My wife woke up wondering what the hell was going on. My mom, who was over for the weekend with my dad, came upstairs and thought my brother and I were having a fight. It was just us yeah. screaming so loudly. <laughs> it was like he was he was saying all kinds of shit. That I don't even want to repeat here about 49ers players. I mean, I was like, I was like, bro, like you're directing this ire toward the 49ers when your own guys are screwing up. Hey, see, he didn't only say it about 49ers players. He also said something to me that was pretty like, yo. <laughs> so I'm going to leave the floor to you guys because I think this could be a nice therapy session for Aswee. It was, uh, it was you know, I've seen Aswee, you know, have some terrible sports moments in the past with the Sixers, with the Packers, uh, with the Sri Lankan cricket team, all kinds of stuff. But this was one of the low points that I've ever seen Oswee have but, in a sports but before, game. Before Oswee go, I just have one simple question for Oswee. <laughs> tell me. <laughs> Oswee, tell Wait. me how my ass tastes. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, know, you know, guys, I kind of lost my voice after that. 
because of all that yelling and everything, I was just, ugh. when the game was that close, I was thinking we've lost this game. I've, I've, I've done this dance before. I've seen it happen over and over and over again. And I was pissed beyond explanation. Like I, that's the most mad I've been after a game in as long as I could remember. And it was funny because Eric, and I'm going to play this. He thought it was a good idea to taunt me with a voicemail. The 49ers told me to call you and say, Tell me how my ass tastes. How my ass tastes. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, it, it was it was almost as if something in me just like, I could not help but laugh. This is a voicemail I'll keep for the rest of my life. Like it actually made my night. It actually made the hurt feel better. But that being said, fuck you, Eric. It was. I just- mean, I was just having the greatest ten minutes of my life. Uh, first off, with Aaron Rodgers, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, inexplicably again against a weaker 49ers team, finding a way to lead a team into snatching defeat out of the jaws of victory, and then me seeing them survey the crowd, and you have all of these crying kids. In Packers gear. And it was just, it literally gave me joy in life just to see that. And then you losing your shit over text message. Yeah. And me just like, it was the most glorious thing ever. Like, if I had died last night after all of that, I would have died a happy and content man. It felt like everything was accomplished. You know, Eric, what one thing that, uh, I guess we're the same type of fucked up in the head as we both enjoy seeing the crying fans. Unfortunately, this time it was my crying fans. But, I mean, unlike any other loss I've experienced as a Packers fan, this one in particular stung because of the implications of it. Because of just like the the organizational just like breakdown that the Packers had from the coaching staff to the players on field, everything. It, it's that this was potentially Aaron Rodgers' last game as a Packer. And and this could usher in the dark ages with Jordan Love, who in the small sample size we've had this season was pretty underwhelming. So for that to be the way we go into the dark ages, goddamn. The football gods must hate the Packers, must hate Aaron Rodgers, and Clearly must hate me also. I I just couldn't get over the fact that y'all... <laughs> you guys sucked at special teams the whole season. And I remember asking us, wait, in the beginning of the game, like in the middle of the game. I'm like, so you guys can't... You guys can't kick field goals. Your field goal kicker has been really shaky this year after having a pretty good career for the Packers. Yep. And then you got a field goal kick blocked. You can't stop punt returns. You can't stop kickoff returns. And I remember saying... But you guys can at least punt, right? And he's like, yeah, that's the one thing we can do. <laughs> and then... And the like, fucking punt gets blocked! It's blocked, returned for a touchdown. And let's not forget, guys, the fucking Green Bay Packers had 10 men on the field in the critical <laughs> possession of their season. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That's some shit when you play, you play Pop Warner football. Like I did for like a boys and girls club, you learn that shit as a little kid. Like, yeah, just the have basics. the right have the right amount of people on the field at any given time, 
like I didn't even notice it until someone pointed it out later on. And it's like, yo, like you all just had a complete meltdown, complete which, meltdown, and it's, which it's, is just glorious. And and I love that this person, Aaron Rodgers, who you adore and you want his legacy to be something that's it's all I Tom, care about Tom as a Brady, fan. It's Tom all Brady I care esque. About. He will never be Tom Brady. He will never reach those heights. And he will forever in history be looked at as his errors. Why tittle? Come on, man. <laughs> yeah. I, he may not reach Eli Manning in the minds of those simple minded football guys who just count rings. I mean, that's <laughs> yep. the truth. That's actually, that's actually true, AC. Great point. I, I will say it. I'll say it now. For me, the most important thing as a fan of football is no matter where he goes, Aaron Rodgers wins titles. I don't care if it's him in the AFC against the Packers in the Super Bowl. I want Aaron Rodgers to win because, quite honestly, I may own the Packers, but I'm a fan of Rodgers more than I'm a fan of laundry. All right? How is this not worse than anything that I say about following basketball teams? He literally just said he will take Aaron Rodgers in a Super Bowl against his own team. Bro. Like, are you serious? Eric, it's worse than that. Oswee is an owner of the Green Bay Packers. (laughs) He owns a share of the Green Bay Packers. Like, like they should just take your share away right now. (laughs) Listen, 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 all right? For years, I've even had that same blanket, this guy versus anything, even in the league with LeBron. You guys can run the tape back. I've always said I want LeBron to win over the Sixers any day, right? Because my love of that one guy. At the end of the day, when we're a fan of a team, we're a fan of laundry, right? Am I am I am I wrong? No, we're a fan of laundry at that point, right? So what I see there in, in Rodgers is a guy who I don't know what like if if karma is real, like he's done some shitty karma and he's been cursed because. I've seen him have incredible playoff performances only for the team to just shit their pants and then we lose in some dramatic way. It makes me sad to see, like, there's a lot that in this day and age I don't agree with Rodgers about. But it's just like, it's so sad to see this guy who's ultra-talented may never be recognized for the the legend and the 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 revolutionary talent that he is. Because of so much unfortunate circumstance, you know, like that, that's what gets me more than anything. It's just like, I feel bad for him, you know? I wish I had a cigarette right now, Oswee, so I could just ask you as I'm smoking slowly. (laughs) (laughs) Was this as good for you as it was for me? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even know how to answer that. (laughs) So if I may... I'm not gonna answer that, obviously, because I can't. <laughs> uh, no, but I, you know, the LeBron thing is an interesting comparison, to Aaron Rodgers, because I do feel like both of them were maybe the most talented players in their respective sports, and due to a number of factors that are probably outside of their actual ability, and they both they both contributed in some ways to their own legacies, you know, for good or for ill, but. Aaron Rodgers has been a, a particularly unlucky because I think before Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers was the most talented quarterback I've ever seen play football, right? And he was cursed by a poor coach 
in Mike McCarthy. He Dom was cursed Capers. by yeah, Dom Capers, an atrocious defensive coordinator. He was cursed by an organization that had some weird allergy to bringing in free agents, which I still don't understand to this day what? why they have to develop everyone internally and just like once in a blue moon get an out you know exterior free agent. AC makes no AC, sense. They basically told their quarterback, an all-time legendary quarterback, to shut up and dribble when it came to anything related to personnel decision. They said, you go do your thing. Yeah, no. Yeah, you know, and then they have had one first round pick that Rodgers has ever played with, and that's Mercedes Lewis, who's washed up at this point in his career. They've never had a number one pick. And they, they you know, to their credit, they've, they've done a good job developing other positions. But I do think he's been extraordinarily unlucky. Let's not forget that Seahawks game. Don't remind me. Brandon. Please, too Probably, much. Oh, oh. That's that's the only game that's even more bizarre than this game. The one where Brandon Bostic <laughs> gets the ball hit in his head. And uh, I hate and you, Brandon ends, Bostic. Uh, you know, the Seahawks recover the onside kick and the rest is history. So he's had his incredible share of bad luck. But let's not forget. And I would say this to you yesterday, Elsie, and you're yeah. not gonna like this. But I'm gonna I say don't, it. I don't like again. this. I don't agree with it. Well, I don't I'm like just gonna it. say it then. I hate you. Shut up. Listen, <laughs> he may be the most talented quarterback that I've ever seen, or or at least one B behind Patrick Mahomes. But I can't remember the last time in one of these elimination games that they lost that I thought, you know what, Aaron Rodgers was great tonight. I didn't think he was great yesterday. I didn't think he was great last year. I didn't think he was great two years ago when he lost the Niners. In fact, I think it was actually bad in that no, game. That, that game, I will agree with you on that. Yes. I agree so, with that. so was he okay yesterday? Sure, but he wasn't great. Yeah, he, you know, their offense, even if you even if you account for the fact their field goal kick was blocked, all right, well, they would have put up 13 points then. 13 points is not gonna win your playoff game, right? And let's yeah, again, the Niners were good defense. This wasn't the 85 Bears. This wasn't the 2000 Ravens. I mean, come on now. You guys could do more, more than put up actually 10 points in a playoff game. So at some point, it's, it's, some responsibility. Told you all how, much, how many points you had to score to win. He said yeah, it. <laughs> I said it. I literally said this in our text thread earlier this game. I said, the Packers have to score 14 points. Jimmy Garoppolo, and listen, I know Eric is a Jimmy Garoppolo hater, though he's a Niners fan. Jimmy Garoppolo, you know, in his best day, can't throw the ball all that well. You know, he doesn't have an arm. He is clearly hurt. Anything going to the sidelines is a fluttering ball, man. I mean, the kind of ball that you you play, you know, you guys throw in recess in elementary school with this guy was throwing in the NFL yesterday. There's all you had to do is get to 14 points, and that you failed to do that. So you can you can do whatever excuses you want for Aaron Rodgers, and I do feel bad for him, and I don't think he's the biggest reason they lost. But he certainly wasn't the reason they they, they won either, right? So and, and that's why they didn't win. Well, all I can say to that, and I will cap it here, is. A quarterback is only as good as his receivers are at getting open. And those guys, aside from Devontae, were just not getting open. So, yes, I'm not often someone who's sad, but I'm sad today for sure. Your tears feed me. (laughs) As Eric continues his journey into becoming a comic book villain. (laughs) Eric, I will say, though, if karma's real, watch yourself. There's no God, there's no karma, and we're going to the Super Bowl. (laughs) Well, guys, I think that's a perfect place to stop for today. Eric, I hope your Niners lose in the most dramatic, terrible, painful way possible, and I'll be here drinking all them tears gladly. Hey, on, brother. (laughs) With that, I'd like to thank you all so much for joining us in today's episode. We hope you enjoyed 
Be sure to like, rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to hit us up by emailing us at brownmanwontjump at gmail.com or on Instagram at brownmanwontjump. Catch you in the next one. Stay safe, guys. Deuces. Peace out. Go Paco, Joel Embiid for MVP. <laughs>